Okay, so we're on the fourth week, been, been uh, looking at the history of the Bible. I, I hope that as we've been going through these things week after week, that it's bolstered your, your confidence in Scripture. Um, most of us here tonight, we're going to be pretty set in what we believe about uh, God and the gospel and the Bible. Certainly, we're always learning growing in the knowledge of truth, but especially that there's many of us here tonight who teach and who preach and minister the word. And so as you minister to those people in your classes or wherever you are, whether it's kids or students or adults, I'm, I'm certain that there are people who attend this church who have questions about the Bible and um, un uncertainty about some things. And so I hope this bolsters your, your confidence and your encouragement as we've gone back through this each week. It's been a blessing for me to go back and to restudy some things, but uh, I'm not going to go back. I'm going to start kind of focus on some New Testament things and then going to talk about the inspiration of Scripture, what that means tonight. But just to very quickly, um, as far as the canonization of the Old Testament, uh, how those books were uh, put in order, how they were set and established, that was done uh, before the interbiblical period. So remember from 1400 B.C. to about 400 B.C., during that thousand years, uh, those books were written, Moses, those authors, those books were, were widely recognized as God's people, as Scripture and all of them were collected. Ezra was a part of that uh, with his work, King Hezekiah. But so, though it, it took a shape, but by the time of 400 B.C., that, the Old Testament books were pretty much canonized and were set. I was talking to a friend of mine this week. Actually, Jack came into my office. He uh, was a friend. He was a member of a, my previous church, and uh, he's an Old Testament professor. He's the uh, dean now at Beeson Divinity School, and I was calling him this week and talking to him about some things regarding this, and it was very helpful. It even reminded that Jeremiah and, I, and Isaiah, those prophets, they make many references to, to all of the Old Testament being set. So it, it was very much established. Um, and um, he, I, some of you, uh, I think, were, were in the men's Bible study a week ago. This is, if you'd let me chase a rabbit for just a second. And um, someone brought up uh, the word that God, does God change his mind? I think that was, um, we were looking at some of the attributes of God. And so the idea, does God change his mind? And there's a, a verse or a word in the Old Testament that kind of conveys that because it says that God repented or God relented or God regretted. And so I had Paul on the, on the phone. I said, hey, talk to me about that a little bit. Kind of bring me up to speed. So I want to just share with you. It was very helpful. That, that word in the original Hebrew was a Hebrew word, nacham, which meant God sighed or he breathed deeply. So like in Genesis 6, when God saw the sinfulness of Noah's day and he regretted that he had created man, 
The word regretted means that God breathed deeply. He, he sighed. He felt this emotion, this sorrow, this sadness. So have you been there, right, where, where emotionally something will cause you to breathe deeply? And so that's what the original word meant in the Hebrew. Unfortunately, in our English Bible, you remember when the King James Version was translated, the translators used the word repented or a, a change, you know, kind of the changing of the mind. And the reason that word was used is because in 16, the 1600s, that word meant to sigh, to feel emotion. Well, today when we word, see that word, that word no longer means that. And he said, so that's why we get confused about today we, we see a word in the King James Version or some other translations that originally it meant to. Uh, you know, I... Some of you may say you did something and you got into, maybe you got into a big home repair project and once you got in it, it was so huge, you think, man, I, I repented of that. It means you regretted, you hated that side that you ever got into it. So it's an emotional thing. So that word, that's what it meant. Uh, but that's not what we think of. We, so it doesn't mean that God changes his mind. He just feels this emotion. That's that was a freebie from from Paul House. By the way, he's supposed to be coming. He's going to come and be with us one weekend here in the spring, and uh, so looking forward to him coming. So that was the Old Testament canonized. Was originally written in what language? And written in Hebrew. All right, all of the books. Then during the the growth of the Greek Empire, there was a the Greek language took over the world, Koine, and so. Eventually, the Hebrews who were dispersed, living all over as the Greek Empire came in, more and more people's second, third generation started coming on where they all learned, read, and uh, could read and write in Greek, but they began to distance themselves from Hebrew. Thus, that's what led to the, the Hebrew scripture being translated into Greek to help God's people to be able to read um, and to and when the and when it and to read it, so, um, so that that's what led to the Greek Septuagint. You remember us talking about that? Okay, so that's where we are. Get up to the Old Testament is set Hebrew. It's eventually translated into Greek, which uh, brings us up to the New Testament. So even in the during the Roman Empire, when the Romans took over the Greeks, they still maintained the Greek the Greek language. Uh, during the empire. So let's talk about the New Testament. Any questions about any of that? What, that's just kind of an overview. So during the New Testament, as the church got started, so Jesus ascends back to the Father. He told his disciples, I won't leave you as orphans. My replacement is coming. Uh, the Holy Spirit was come. You see that really fulfilled in on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Right, the Holy Spirit came and dwells the church. And so that's the birth at Pentecost is the birth of the New Testament church. So I want you to think about what was the New Testament church built on? What was the church established on? Well, it was built on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, teachings, 
Certainly his death, burial, his resurrection, the church was established on the gospel, but it was supported by the Old Testament. And so all the references that you read uh, when in the New Testament referring to the scriptures, that's all referring to the Old Testament. You remember in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus was, was raised from the dead, and for the next 40 days, he began to make post-resurrection appearances. And Luke 24, verse 44 said, every time that he appeared to his disciples, he taught them the scriptures concerning himself. And do you remember what scriptures it said he taught them from concerning himself? From the law, from the prophets, and from the Psalms. So I would have certainly have loved to heard Jesus teach from the Old Testament concerning himself. So each time he does that, um, uh, Luke, uh, also 24, the road to Emmaus, those guys are traveling, they're troubled, they're upset. Jesus appears to them in this post-resurrection and he gets into a conversation and they say, don't you know what's happening? And and so Jesus then, the Bible says, he began to open their understanding from the scriptures. Well, that was the Old Testament. So the New Testament church is built on Christ. That's our foundation. Uh, Peter talks about that, right? The, in 1 Peter 2, the foundation is Christ. But it was established on the Old Testament scriptures. And within shortly towards the end of the uh, first century, then the New Testament books began to be established and the church was also reading those and sharing those, uh, these New Testament books that we know were certainly uh, helped support the church. So the apostles, the letters, so we'll get to that. So New Testament, how many books in the New Testament? 27 books, right? It's canonized. The canon is closed. No more books to be added. What are the four divisions? So if you're going to teach, you need to know this. What are the four major divisions of the New Testament? So the first division is the Gospels. The three synoptics are the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They were viewed, the word synoptic means a unit. So those first three were viewed as a unit, a unit, not a unique, a unit, <laughs> they were they were one. Uh, most likely, Mark was written first, and then Luke and and Matthew also probably built upon uh, Mark's uh, account, Mark's writing. Um, and then John, a little different um, in its vocabulary, style, wording. Um, so it's the fourth gospel. All of the gospels are about one subject. They're all about. Jesus, his life, some of them record his birth. Which gospel doesn't record anything about his birth? John, just, he just starts with a prologue. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the, Lord, the word, the Lord Jesus was God. And uh, so, but all of them cover, all of them cover his, his, his death, his burial and resurrection. And so, uh, if you want to study um, 
you know, I would, I would encourage kids and teenagers, if they're going to study the New Testament, just study the Gospels, man. Just teach them, teach them to get strong in what they believe about Jesus, strong in his teachings, uh, certainly the Gospel as, as revealed there. Um, that's, that's great foundation to get, to get started on is the person, the work of Christ. The next major division of the New Testament is history. Which book of the New Testament is about the history of the church? The book of Acts, right? So that gives you the history of the church. The storyline in the Old Testament runs from Genesis to Esther. Those 17 books provide you the story. Well, the the book of Acts gives you the kind of the beginning, the history, the story of how the church got started. And the book of Acts has two divisions to it, two, two major sections. The first section of the book of Acts is the ministry of Peter, and Peter is primarily um, ministering to what people group? To Jews, right? And then the second part of the book of Acts is primarily about a guy who's converted named Saul, who becomes Peewee. He becomes Paul. By the way, that's what the word Paul means. It means Peewee. <laughs> and if you read Josephus' description of the apostle Paul, Josephus says he was very short, probably about five foot six, five foot seven. He was hunched back a little bit over. He had an issue. He was humped over. He had red hair and bug eyes, big eyes. He doesn't, you know, when you read the Old Testament, you just read about King Saul, handsome, tall, amazing physique, beautiful. I mean, just a, a specimen of a man. That's not what you see in the Apostle Paul. Is in literally word Paul was a nickname given to him, which means peewee, little guy. I always think of, I'm kind of dating myself, young people, when I, Marty Feldman. <laughs> That's kind of what I think of uh, when I think of the the apostle Paul, what he, what he appeared like in, in physically. But so that's what you have in the book of Acts history, starting the church, starting with the Jews, going to the Gentiles. It fulfills the great commission. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses starting where Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The church is to take the gospel to the nations. Jesus said to his disciples uh, before he ascended, and stay here, Terry, when my Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts is a picture of the gospel breaking down barriers. Starts in Jerusalem where the apostles are. The persecution breaks out under Saul. Christians start fleeing north to Judea. They start spreading the gospel as they go. They eventually go and get into Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. God uses persecution to drive his people out and for the spreading of the gospel. Certainly on the day of Pentecost, as Jews were there who had been living in different parts of the earth, they'd come back to celebrate Passover. They spoke different languages. And what was one of the amazing uh, obstacles that God broke down on the day of Pentecost was that of language. Peter preaches, he's probably preaching in the Greek language in Koine, and all these other Jews are there from all over the earth. And remember the miracle at Pentecost through the work of the Spirit, each heard the gospel in their own language. 
What is God doing there? Well, that would, that, would make, that would make international missions to the nations a lot easier, wouldn't it, today? If our missionaries didn't have to learn languages, if they could just go and the Holy Spirit would move and they'd speak and people would hear the gospel in their own language. God was working in an extraordinary manner and fashion there to spread the gospel. So as these Jews heard the gospel, they went back to their homes. This is fulfilling God's plan to advance God. So that's the second division. And then the, you have the, epist the epistles. Um, six writers in the New Testament wrote letters. Help me out. Paul was the first one. Whoever wrote Hebrews is number two. If you think, it, if you think Paul wrote Hebrews, uh, some still do. So that would be five. But who are the other four that we know that wrote letters in the New Testament? Who? Okay, well, Timothy, Timothy didn't write. Paul wrote to Timothy. The, who, are, who are the inner, inner three? Inner three disciples. Peter, James, and John. So you have Peter, first, second Peter. James wrote the book of James. First and second, third John. Who also wrote Revelation? John. And then the, the other writer was Jude. Okay, so you have Paul, one. Whoever wrote Hebrews and the four others, Peter, James, John, and Jude. So six writers. And the letters, so you think about these letters, were written to some to very specific churches. So some of the letters to specific churches with specific problems. <laughs> Somebody, you know, today people will get they, people get discouraged with the church, right? The church has got problems, and I just am tired of that. I, I wish I could just go to the, a church that had it all together and did everything right where there weren't problems. It's never existed. If that was the case, we wouldn't have the majority of the New Testament. It's had problems from day one. The reason Hillcrest has problems is because I'm your pastor. I'm a sinful guy. The reason we have problems here is because you also, we're all still sinners saved by the grace of God, and we're still prone to thinking and working and moving in the flesh. There are no perfect churches, there will be, and one day there will be. So you have these letters written to specific churches, um, then you have some letters that were called circular letters. What does that mean? What was Colossians? Probably a circular letter. So it was written to churches in a, in a certain area. And those letters were written, a letter was written to be circulated, read in this church, then sent and passed along and read in different churches. And by the way, those letters were also copied so when you, if you had an original autograph, a letter written by the, the hand of the Apostle Paul, it wasn't uncommon for some of those churches to have some scribes or people that were meticulous to, to begin to copy those letters. Why would they want to do that? So they could keep, keep. The, the Apostles were recognized by all of the early Christians, by all of the churches, they were recognized as having an apostolic authority. So whatever they wrote, it was, it was recognized by the church to be of God. And so if you received a letter, you, 
you wanted to keep her copies, especially if you had to pass it on. So some were circular, and then some of the letters were written to, to encourage young pastors, and they, so they were known as what epistles? As the pastorals. First and second Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, to Titus. He's writing to young guys to help them to know how church was to be done, how to help them to be effective at leading the church. And so those letters, Hebrews are not sure of the authorship written to suffering Jews, uh, suffering Jews, and then Peter, James, John, and Jude written to a wider group of churches. And then the last book is Revelation. Okay, so um, it's, it's really a book about what's to come. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples in the Great Commission, and I will be with you to the end of the eon, to the end of this age. So it, Jesus is pretty clear that this current age, wherever you see this, or dispensation, this church age in which we're living in now, or this dispensation of the church this time, it's going to end. And so Revelation is a picture of what's to come, um, uh, the return of Christ and a new heaven and a new earth um, for, for all of eternity. So that's kind of an overview of the New Testament. So the New Testament church, again, established on Christ and the gospel, built upon the Old Testament, and then as these letters were being written and copied and circulated, those letters were also established to be uh, are recognized to be author to have authority uh, to to guide the churches as well. Um, so the Old Testament was written over a period of how many years? About a thousand years. How many years did it take for all of the New Testament to be written? So if Jesus split time, right? By the way, that isn't that interesting. Have you ever thought about the most significant event that ever has occurred in the history of the world is the, is the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ? He split time. Time revolves. We measure time today around the incarnation of Christ. So, so roughly, uh, if he was crucified and his ministry ended in A.D. 33, so the New Testament, you know, had to be, had to, these letters and stuff and gospels all had to probably have been written, started being written after Jesus ascended. So most of the, anybody that you read believes that the New Testament, all the letters and gospels were written somewhere between approximately 50 AD, maybe 48 AD up until 100. So there's probably a 50, um, 50-year period, maybe 60 years when the whole New Testament was written. A thousand years for the Old Testament, 50 or 60 years for the New Testament. The earliest documents to be written were the letters of Paul. So we, you know, if we read the New Testament, we think the Gospels were first. Well, they, that happened chronologically, certainly Christ in his ministry, but those weren't written yet. The first was, was the Apostle Paul and so he starts writing about 48 A.D. Uh, he writes his letters. And then from later up until 100 was the, were the Gospels and then the book of Acts and Revelation. All right, I'm going to ask you a little trick question. Who wrote most of the New Testament? 
Paul, any other? Well, it depends on how you measure most of the New Testament. If you, if you measure volume, Luke and Acts would be Luke. So from a pure volume standpoint, Luke wrote more than Paul. But if you look at letters, numbers of books, it was the Apostle Paul. I had a little trick question. The reason I remember that is I got that wrong on a test. <laughs> uh, I also remember, this is a little, little trivia thing. I also missed this on a question. When Peter was released from prison and he knocked on the door where the church was praying, who was the girl's name that met him at the door? Rhoda, and I miss that, so I've never forgotten that the rest of my life. Say, so we learn more from failure than we do success. So, uh, yeah, so Mr. Mr. Rhoda. Um, let's see. Uh, I have some references here. If you want, if I'm, I'm, let me read these very quickly because I wrote those down. The New Testament Christians, the New Testament churches, as these churches began to spring up, and we're formed, being formed. By the way, I also think it's very interesting as the Christians were dispersed from Jerusalem when they were persecuted, guess who didn't go out? The apostles. <laughs> so the ones that Jesus, they were the last ones to start going out and sharing the gospel. It was the early Christians as they begin to be, they're the ones who are spreading it. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Eventually they go forth. But my, my, my point is these house churches, as they begin to spring up in different cities and areas, when they received a letter from the apostle Paul, uh, they recognized it as scripture. Or when they uh, heard, or heard or about one of the gospels or the book of Acts, something that Luke wrote, they recognized that as, as scripture. Um, and it's very clear. First Thessalonians 5.27, Paul says, I command you, writing to the Christians in Thessalonica, I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all of the Christians and to all the churches because they recognized it as being scripture and inspired. Um, in first, earlier in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, he commended them that they recognized and ex accepted the letter as the word of God. He, so they affirmed that. Just a couple others. 1 Corinthians 14, the things which I write to you are commandments from the Lord. Colossians 4, 16. Now when this letter is read among you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read this epistle from Laodicea. Again, they recognize it as being scripture, apostolic authority. Of Revelation 1.3, John wrote, right, Revelation, blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Again, a recognition that it was scripture. So um, all of those books, very little debate about whether they were scripture. Um, the canonization process of how they all began to be collected into the 27 books that we have that happened slowly. So from about 150 AD, all right, about 100 years after Christ has gone, these letters 
Paul, copies of the Gospels, copies of the book of Acts. Those are starting to be copied, spread around. They're, they're, there's, little recog- there's little doubt that they're Scripture. And so starting about 150 A.D., they, they start being put together. Some of you have heard, of, heard about church have you heard about church fathers, the early church fathers? Who's that referring to? The early church fathers. Well, these men like Tertullian and Origen and Polycarp and St. Ignatius, um, if you, especially if you grew up Catholic, you're going to know about church fathers. But these were men, Christians, who believed the gospel early on in the church's development. And these church fathers begin, are the ones who begin to canonize and pull all the scripture together. Um, and I thought it was also interesting too. I came up, was doing some reading. Um, during the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, those reformers, where, right, where we, today you get... You know, people go back to Reformed theology. Uh, if you go back and you study the Reformers and Reformed theology, there was nothing in their writings about inspiration of Scripture. That was not even an issue. The Reformers were, were fighting against the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church believes Scripture. The Catholic Church today still believes in the inspiration of Scripture. The problem was is they also recognized that the church fathers had as much authority as the scripture itself. Does that make sense? So Luther was trying to get the Catholic church to reform. The problem wasn't that they didn't believe scripture. He was saying scripture alone, not these church fathers and not all of this, uh, this other doctrine that was added and, and brought about later. By the way, just some, just some things. If you go back and you study the period and you stu- study the church became, this was what Luther said, the church became more Roman Catholic, more Roman and less scriptural. Uh, by the way, historical things that Catholics, do you know why Catholics, Catholics eat fish on Friday? Y'all heard of that, right? Most Catholics would only eat fish on Friday. You know where that came from? <laughs> there was a fishing village in one of the early communities during that era in time. It was a big fishing village. And so to boost the economy, one of the cardinals re- required everybody in the community to eat fish to help bolster the, to bolster the economy. That's why Catholics eat fish on Friday. Um, the uh, other stuff like uh, uh, um, celibacy for priests. Do you know where that came from? Why, why priests, why the Catholic Church required priests to be celibate? It's because of divorce. There was a high degree, a number of priests going through divorce, and so the church, one of the popes spoke ex cathedra, and declared that going forward, all priests had to be celibate because of divorce settlements. It was, it was hurting the church. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's really corrupt. <laughs> really, really. Purgatory, and I won't even get you started how that came into the church, but no scriptural references for any of those things. So, 
Um, by, by the time about, about two, uh, 200 AD, the New Testament was canonized. It was set. There was a guy named Origen. Origen was one of the church fathers. He, he was a devout scholar. He knew Greek. He knew Hebrew. He grew up in Egypt, later moved to Palestine and established a, uh, in Palestine, started a school for pastors. So as early as 200 AD, they're training pastors to plant churches, to spread the gospel, following the, the methodology you see prescribed in the New Testament, um, in the book of, in the church of Antioch. So our, our missionary sending practice is born out of scripture. In Acts, the church is worshiping, they're praying, and the Bible says they're praying in one accord, they're praying in unity, and the Holy Spirit spoke to the church and says, set apart who? Paul and Barnabas. That was the work of the Spirit. And so the church sent out the cream of the crop. They sent out Paul, they sent out Barnabas. So the church sent them out. That's, the, that's where you get the whole missionary sending um, that we hopefully still follow today. But around 200 AD, the New Testament was canonized. There, there is, you can read some things about, there, there were some questions about certain books and whether or not they should be included. But some of, the, some of those questions that you read, they were never really, it was never really that big of an issue. Uh, there were some questions about it, but they did recognize those books as uh, scripture. And so, it, it really, all of the books of the New Testament really, they, they really find their credibility, their credibility, it all rests on apostolic authority. All the early Christians recognized Jesus, his 12 disciples, his apostles, that Jesus had commissioned them and sent them out, and so they were, they were recognized as being authoritative. So those books were very little question about the canonization uh, those New Testament books, again, all written in Greek. Questions about any of that? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of flying through it. Does this help? I, I hope it helps, you know, um, a little bit. Let me, uh, in the next few minutes, talk about inspiration. So you and I um, believe that this, this book is the inspired word of God. We believe in inspiration. So what does that mean? How would you explain the inspiration of Scripture to someone else? Well, the word inspiration, there's an Old Testament word. Nefesh was the Hebrew word. Uh, and, it, and that word nefesh means breath. In the New Testament, it's uh, uh, nefesh. Uh, do you remember the Greek word pneuma? Any of you, uh, what's the medical field that has to do with the lungs? Uh, pulmonary, pulmonary guy, pneuma. pneuma. So nephish in the Hebrew, pneuma in spirit, but it means breath, the spirit of God. So we believe that scripture was inspired. Uh, that word means God breathed or literally, literally Outbreathed or outbreath. Uh, think about Genesis when God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and he nephished, 
He breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath, the nephish, this out-breath of God, out-breathe. And this uh, means given by God, divine activity, out-breath. Uh, you say the same word in the New Testament, all, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed, out-breathed by God. Um, same word, just kind of a synonym for this. So it's, it's to be the breath of God from God, divine activity, uh, to breathe out. By the way, uh, was, went back and was looking at some of this. Um, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration. The, some some trans, newer translations say all scripture is inspired by God, which is not the best translation. The best translation is given by inspiration. Inspired means in breath. Inspiration means out breath. Outbreathed. So the better translation is given by inspiration. It's the outbreathed of God. So the breath in the New Testament is associated with a person. Who? Who is the person in the New Testament associated with the breath of God? The Holy Spirit, right? Um, you remember. Uh, John 3, and Jesus is teaching. Remember, he talks to John about being born again. And John says, how can this be? He doesn't understand. And then Jesus goes into this lesson on the Spirit. And he compares the Holy Spirit to a what? To the wind. How can you, Nicodemus, be a teacher of Israel and not understand this? Do you believe in the wind, Nicodemus? Can you see the wind, Nicodemus? You can't see the wind. Can you predict the wind, how, where it's going to blow and when it's going to blow? No, you can't predict the wind. And so you can't see it, you can't predict it, but it's real. And you certainly can see the effects of the wind, and you certainly can feel the presence of the wind when it's about 105 degrees here in Mississippi with 90% humidity, and it's still and nothing, and you get a nice cool breeze going. Man, you appreciate the effects of the wind. That's the work of the Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came, it came as the sound of a rushing, mighty Wind. You can't control. And so it's the work of the Spirit. You and I cannot control the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves as He wills, when He wills. And so we certainly can welcome, welcome the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm thankful for the work of God's spirit in my life and yours. Amen? Um, he began to move and speak and draw and convict. It's the work of the spirit. And so we want to 
we want to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And certainly, the New Testament uses two words. You don't want to quench the Spirit, nor do you want to grieve. When I think about grief, when you, um, I was with a guy yesterday, he's a Christian counselor in Tupelo, and, and he was talking about grief. Um, grief is a, is, a, is a mourning, it's a, it's a type of suffering, it's a type of pain. You remember Kubler-Ross was the first one to come up with the five stages of grief and all those, how, how grief works. It, you feel it. Well, we can grieve, we can sadden the Holy Spirit as he begins to speak and lead and we can grieve him. And hinder, hinder from moving, hinder him from working in our lives. You can quench it. When you think about, think about quenching, if you have a fire, how do you quench a fire? Douse it. Do you think we ever douse, quench the work of the Holy Spirit? Because we're, we refuse to be pliable, refuse to be open. You, uh, Jesus talked about new wine and old wine skins and the new wine, the work of the Spirit, it will not, God will not allow that new wine to be put into old wine skins. Why? Because it, as it ferments, as it works, the old wine skin, the old leather is brittle and Jesus says it will burst and the wine is lost. And so for new wine to come, work of the Spirit, we as God's people have to be open be sensitive and open to how God speaks and moves in us. And, and you know, we, we certainly welcome that, right? As a church, Hillcrest, we, we want to welcome, welcome the Spirit of God, welcome the new things that God might be calling us to, new challenges, new doors of opportunity. We want to welcome the Spirit work in my life to let go of some preconceived ideas or preferences and, and want to be open to say, God, here am I. Yeah, yes, Lord, you know. So by one of the greatest contradictions in the New Testament is when Peter says, no, Lord. No, Lord. That is a great, huge contradiction. If he's Lord, he say, no, Lord. Uh, terrible. So that's, uh, that's what we think about when we think about the inspiration of the Bible and it's outbreathed. And so in the New Testament, um, all scripture is given by inspiration. The Holy Spirit worked, moved upon these writers, these men, uh, to write the Gospels, to write uh, Acts, to write these epistles. Certainly, you, you, you can't read the book of Revelation and know that John wasn't inspired to write that, Right? There, there had to be a divine influence writing. So that's what, so the New Testament, these books of our New Testament, I would say, explain it to somebody that there are two authors to these books. God is the primary author working through the spirit, but there's still a human element. There's still a human author, right? Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. No prophecy of scripture ever came from men, 
But Scripture came as men were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak and to write. And so God still had to initiate so what they were still men who uh, God's Spirit wrote through. The New Testament Scriptures are referred to as the oracles of God or the utterances of God. So men moved by the Holy Spirit. So as Paul wrote, he, he certainly had awareness of people that he was writing to, of situations he was writing to, and as he addressed those, somehow the Spirit of God moved in him, and he wrote, do you, do you think that he was a dictaphone, that he just, when he wrote, he, he moved into a trance, and he, his, his, his fingers and his hand and his arm just became a manical or mechanical computer that he just wrote like that? No. No. He wasn't a computer. He wasn't a mechanical arm. There's, when you read the New Testament, and this is the mystery of this inspiration, when you read these New Testament letters, you can certainly read the book of Hebrews and then read the book of 1 John, and that, that, the style of that writing is different. So there's still a human element of that, a human personality aspect of that, but still God worked through that to influence men uh, to, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit to write. And for me, there's a sense of divine mystery to it. How does God do that? How did God do that? Uh, do, you, do you think that he just spoke audibly and gave them words in their ear and they just wrote mechanically through words they heard? No. So I, I, don't, I don't really know how to explain it, but I'm comfortable with it and, and uh, believe that it's inspired by the Lord. I've got six minutes. Um, let me see if I can touch on two words that are related to the inspiration of Scripture. I know that you've heard them. One word is infallibility. Have you heard that the Scriptures are infallible and sufficient? And the other word that you may have heard is the word of uh, inerrancy. Have you heard those words? Infallibility, inerrancy. If you, if you do any study at all, I know you've heard those. You and I as Christians, we're people of the book. We acknowledge the Old Testament and the New Testament to be given by God through inspiration. Um, and I will tell you this, that evangelicals, good Christian scholars today have differing views, different interpretations and definitions on infallibility and inerrancy. They're different. That's why you'll never hear me use the word inerrancy in, from the pulpit. First of all, it's not a biblical word. It's not in the Bible. Neither is infallibility. And the reason I don't use it is because when you use it, it creates automatically, puts people on the defensive, and based on who you ask, they'll have different definitions of it. So I just try to explain what the Bible says about itself. Right? I personally believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I hope that you... Remember we talked last week about it would be good for you and I to memorize, to know where those verses are in the New Testament that speak to inspiration. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, all scripture is God-breathed. It's, 
It's alive, it's active, it's sharp, it pierces, it divides, it discerns. Hebrews 4.12, 1 Peter 1.21, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture inspired by God, profitable. So certainly need to know that, believe that, but believe just high view of scripture, but um, um, different, different views of, of what this is. Um, let me, let me take a, just kind of give you a kind of a quick couple thoughts about these. Um, infallibility means, if someone says, I believe in the infallibility of scripture, it means they believe it's reliable. How many of you believe it's reliable? It is trustworthy. All hands, trustworthy. To those who go to it in search of God, in search of truth, it's infallible. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's indefective. It's not going to fail. God does not use his word to deceive. It's infallible. It's reliable. It refers to our salvation and our relationship with God. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. It's infallible. All of us would say we believe in the infallibility of scripture. Amen? All right, inerrancy. Much later term. Um, the early church, early Christians, they accepted it as inspiration. Historically, what happened as people began to drift from Scripture and other ideas and interpretations were added, that's when this word of inerrancy began to come. And really it became popular. And if you want to look this up, in 1976, there was a, a book called, came out about the authority of Scripture, and there was a guy named Harold Linzel. And his concern was he saw the church in America drifting from Scripture. So he came out with a book, and he, many Christians were drifting from Scripture. So he came out with this book in 1976 to, to get the church back to orthodoxy, back to um, a, a solid view of Scripture. But that's when inerrancy really, really became more popular here, especially among Baptists. And it, inerrancy literally means there's no errors. No errors, it's without error, no contradictions. And by the way, anyone who says they believe in inerrancy, they would say it only refers to the original manuscripts. It only refers to the original autographs, could you, which none of them exist. We have, we have no original manuscripts, not written by the authors. And you, they, they've found historical copies, but there's not any anyone who says they've ever come upon an original manuscript autographed by the Apostle Paul. So inerrancy says there's no errors, no contradictions in the original manuscripts. Um, so it's kind of the basis for it. And then um, what people today believe about, uh, about New Testament especially, all inerrantists today, like Danny Aiken was here, I heard him say this, say it several times in session. I am an inerrantist. I am an inerrantist. He said it without apology. Well, I, I wish I would have asked him to explain what his view of that was. Uh, to, but he, I'm not saying that critically. I'm just, and there's a lot of, a lot of people hold that view. So all inerrantists would believe and would hold to the infallibility of scripture. But not all people who believe in the infallibility of Scripture would say they are inerrantists. Um, let me give you some examples. 
of where some people would say, I believe in the authority, the reliability, the infallibility of Scripture, but I don't think it's without error. All right? There could have been some transmission errors, other kinds of errors. Let me give you some examples where they go. They would say, if you study the genealogy in Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3, there are differences. That might support somebody not being an inerrantist. If you read Paul's conversion account, if you read Acts 9, if you read Acts 22, if you read Acts 26, there are differences in Paul's description of his conversion account. Some say all, everyone heard the voice from heaven. Some of those descriptions say only he heard it. Is that an error? Is that a contradiction? I don't know. Um, in Leviticus 11.6, it says a rabbit or a hare chews its cud. We know that's impossible. Is that an error? Is that a transmission flaw? Go on. That's, it's, it's nitpicky, minor things like that that will cause people, some people say, I believe in the infallibility and the reliability of Scripture, but I'm not an inheritance. I think there might be some little errors here and there since certain things like that. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've dealt with this yet. I just believe the Bible is the Word of God. It's reliable. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. I know my life's a lot better when I study it and meditate and abide in it, and I know it's want to preach it and teach it and be faithful to it and trust it that God works through it I, but I don't know about all the you know and by the way there are actually and this is what's really sad to me there are strong Christians today who will divide with other Christians and will actually have uh, negative attitudes and and towards other brothers and sisters in Christ if they don't believe on their view of inspiration there was a guy here, not well, I will not in this church, but in this area that I was talking to, and he wanted to argue and argue and argue with me that I was wrong because I didn't agree with him on a certain interpretation of passage scripture, and we're not very close. <laughs> I said, like, dude, <laughs> you know, do you think we do that? Divide with each other over. So let's just let's just hold to the inspiration. It's God outbreathed. It's it's everything it says it is. It's and just build on that. And and I'm not saying it's not valuable to study these different words and things that the Bible that people because so it's the way we learn. So we want to we don't just put our heads in the sand and remain uninformed. But and so it's good to study all those kinds of things. But um, whether you're an amillennialist, premillennialist, dispensation, non-dispensationist, all that, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to divide with people over that stuff, you know. Kind of, kind of know comfortable with what I believe from Scripture, and I certainly would enjoy talking to somebody about a different view. But um, so, anyways, what questions you have? We'll stop there. If if I. Feel like I, am I going too fast? Is that does any of this helpful? Feel like it's kind of helpful, kind of help cement you a little bit. So infallible inerrantists, inerrancy. So okay, hey, let me pray with you, Lord. Thank you for just thank you for giving to us your word and preserving your word for us. 
God, help us to study, to show ourselves approved unto you, workmen who need not to be ashamed, but workmen who rightly cut and divide the word of truth. And Father, we know it's true, and so we pray that we would be sanctified in the truth and, uh, and just pray that it would guide us as individual Christians and families and certainly as a church family. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.